I know, they're all promoting vaccinations. They're mm -hmm. all put it all over LinkedIn and all social media channels in a positive way. Say, hey, I did it. So leading by example, I did it. The team did it. Let's all do it because it will help us to keep the business afloat. I mean, there's now it's a real business necessity for some of the businesses to to have their people vaccinated up to 90% to up to 100%, unless you have a very, very good reason not to be vaccinated. So finally, let me ask you that if you could give a couple of recommendations to the government to get things going again, get things moving, what would they be? Uh, I, I think uh, react to the, the offer, particularly in our case from Europe. Europe is opening up, so we shall discuss how we can open up to Euro. What are the health protocols we need to see in order to not unnecessarily increase the health risk mm -hmm. for Hong Kong? We fully understand that we don't want to put Hong Kong in a risk spot from a health perspective. However, I think we should do everything possible. The airlines are ready to, to facilitate safe travel. Um, we, we need to promote further. Uh, that vaccines are, are safe, that vaccines work, and that vaccines are the only way out of this mess. Frederick, thanks very much for coming in this morning. Thanks for having me. That's Frederick Gollop, who's chairman of the European Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning. After the Fed meeting, Asian stocks are slipping further into the red. The ASX 200 in Australia off half a percent now. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has declined 1% and it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 1% lower as well in an hour's time. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil also slipping at $73.68 a barrel. A little bit of a rebound going on for gold at $1,815 an ounce. Thanks very much for listening this morning. Stay tuned to Back Chat. Uh, Hugh Chiverton and Nixie Lamb coming up in a moment. The weather forecast for today, sunny periods, isolated showers can be very hot again, 33 degrees. The very hot weather warning is in force and it's going to remain hot with sunny periods in the next couple of days. It's 30 degrees already right now, 82% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Samantha Butler with the Half Hour News. National Security Police have raided Apple Daily offices in Zhengguanou and arrested five directors on suspicion of colluding with a foreign country or external elements to endanger national security. Police say the four men and a woman aged between 47 and 63 are being detained for investigation and searches were also conducted on their residences. Apple Daily says, says the arrested include its editor-in-chief Ryan Law and two other editors, as well as the chief executive of parent company Next Digital, Kim Hung and the company's chief operating officer. Reports say more than 200 police entered Apple Daily's premises around 7 o'clock this morning. Editor-in-chief Mr Law was taken away from his home in Quarry Bay around the same time. The group's founder Jimmy Lai is currently in jail for taking part in unauthorised assemblies in 2019 and last year. His shares and assets in the company have also been frozen by authorities. A government fund to compensate people who suffer severe side effects from COVID vaccines has so far paid out $450,000 to three cases. They include a patient who suffered a severe allergic reaction, one with facial paralysis and another who was hospitalised after vaccination. The government said it had so far received 74 applications to the fund and around 60 others were still being processed. Yesterday, authorities announced one imported coronavirus case from Sri Lanka. They also quarantined the close contacts of an 18-year-old recovered patient who travelled to Macau on Sunday and tested weak positive for the virus during quarantine. 
The US and Russian presidents have described their first summit in Geneva as positive and constructive, though both made it clear significant differences remain. Joe Biden said he'd brought up human rights during the talks, including the fate of the imprisoned opposition activist Alexei Navalny and the treatment of Russian protesters. In some of his strongest remarks, Mr Biden said he'd made it clear it would be devastating for Russia if Mr Navalny were to die in jail. What do you think happens when he's saying it's not about hurting Navalny, this, all the stuff he says to rationalize the treatment of Navalny, and then he dies in prison? I pointed out to him that it matters a great deal. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton and your co-host today is Nixie Lamb. Nixie, good morning to you. Good morning. Today we're talking about film censorship and staycation traps. Hong Kong's film censors have been ordered to ban any movies deemed to be supporting or glorifying acts that could endanger national security. The government has gazetted changes to the film censorship ordinance, saying this is part of its duty under the national security law. The chief executive acknowledged the new rules had caused some anxiety within the creative industry, but stressed that guidance was needed to prevent inadvertent violations of the national security law. She said that apart from the four offences that undermine national security, there are also provisions in the law requiring, quote, almost every department, every individual, every organisation not to undermine national security or harm the interests of the nation. How will the new rules affect filmmaking and film distribution here? The censors now have to judge if a film has any content which is objectively capable of being perceived as supporting an act jeopardising the safeguarding of national security. What does that mean in reality? How will Hollywood film Films fair. Will 10 years, for example, be banned? And what about documentaries? Let us know your thoughts. You can leave comments on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us. The number is 233-88266, 233-88266, after 9.15. As I say, we're discussing staycation. Some people have fallen into consumer traps over staycation bookings. We'll be talking to the head of the uh, Consumer Council about uh, that situation that's coming up after about 9.20 this morning. Once again, our email address is backchat at rthk.hk. Let's kick off with a couple of, uh, uh, of emails. Uh, sad one, first of all, from Mary, uh, who says, Asia's world city, the pearl of the Orient, the sophisticated and cosmopolitan financial centre has been transformed almost overnight into the kingdom of the Neanderthals, stripped of culture and savoir-faire. Any vestige of a progressive and enlightened society has been extinguished. We are not even a laughing stock. The transformation has been too vicious and malevolent to generate such empathy. That's from Mary. Derek says, Dear Backchat, the arts and film community need clarity. The national security law can now mean whatever the government wants it to mean, and thus any art or film that the party may not like can be banned. I assume films glorifying the 2019 street protests won't be allowed, but what about a film with rebels fighting an evil empire in a galaxy far, far away? What about a film directed by a Chinese-American who was critical of the Chinese government in an interview nearly a decade ago? What about a film about love that Junius Ho considers dirty? That comes uh, from Derek. Our email, once again, backchat.rthk.hk. Joining us uh, now, we have Christoph van der Trost, who's an assistant professor in the Centre for China Studies at the Chinese University. Uh, Anthony Dapperan, who's a Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer and the author of City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. And joining us on the line, Dr Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a professor of politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Once again, our email, backchat.rthk.hk. 
www.ac.hk. Uh, Professor Vernon Tross, maybe we'll start with you. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you much indeed for, for, for joining us today. So uh, you've written uh, quite a lot on, on uh, film censorship uh, in Hong Kong. Um, what do you make of this latest move? Uh, does it surprise you for a start? Uh, it didn't really surprise me um, because there, there have been a number of events in, in recent months that already hinted at what was to come. Um, I think what these recent uh, the, the updated guidelines have done is to formalize some of the red lines that already existed. Um, so there had been calls from uh, pro-Beijing politicians uh, to take action against films that are perceived as uh, so-called yellow um, there have been actions from the government uh, to uh, enforce the, the censorship uh, guidelines um, by inspecting uh, certain screenings, for instance, about uh, the protests, uh, especially protest films have been targeted uh, already. Um, so, yeah, the, the new uh, guidelines didn't really surprise me. Who makes the decision in Hong Kong? Who were the censors? Um, so uh, the, there is the uh, Office for Film, Newspaper and Article Administration, um, and uh, this uh, uh, is part of a larger uh, department which is headed by, I think, the Secretary for Trade and Commerce. Um, and so they, they have uh, censors that work for them. Um, they also invite members of the public uh, to give their opinion about censorship standards. Um, so uh, that's the, the, the main mechanism for censorship in Hong Kong. All right, so the public just they have an advisory role. They have an advisory role, yeah. I think they're called uh, literally censorship advisors or something like that. And, of course, this applies not just to films made in Hong Kong, but all films that are going to be shown in Hong Kong. Right. Yeah. I think it's like everything that's shown in the theatre. So mm -hmm. even though it's not like a movie, if you, play, if you film something like for 20 minutes, you want to play that because you know the owner of the uh, theater you still have to go through that sensors it goes beyond theater so yeah. every public yeah. venue no. but not the internet um i i don't think so as so i've been trying to find this out but i didn't uh see this so the the, the law that exists the ordinance uh for film censorship talks about dvds talks about <coughs> laser discs still so it's clearly a bit uh, <laughs> a bit outdated so i, I there, there must be other laws i guess that apply to the internet but uh, i'm not familiar with this area um, is it is there some kind of qualitative difference between looking for obscenity or for, or things which uh, incite hatred, and what's demanded of the censors? Do you think under the new regulations? Um, so the new regulations have, have kind of been inserted into the existing ones. So they had already uh, certain standards for, uh, say, sex, uh, violence, uh, depiction of crime, um, also the depiction of various types of. Uh, discrimination, like sexual discrimination, racial discrimination, uh, and so on. And so the new uh, guidelines for national security have been imported uh, into that. Um, but uh, I've tried to understand by reading through those guidelines, I find it quite confusing how this actually will work uh, in practice. Um, I also think that the, the, the government is uh, possibly exceeding what they are allowed to do uh, under the law, uh, under the censorship ordinance. So what they've adjusted is the administrative guidelines, um, but those guidelines should fall within the scope of the ordinance. Uh, the ordinance itself uh, doesn't really cover this kind of political censorship. Um, so I, I would, uh, it would be good to hear more about uh, this from legal, legal scholars, but uh, just looking at the history of uh, censorship in Hong Kong, uh, there has actually been a, a controversy in the 80s about this already, where uh, the government was worried that its own censorship was illegal. 
And this actually led to the introduction of the uh, film censorship ordinance in 1988 that we still have today uh, in an amended form. What, what, what are the problems? Couldn't it be, as you say, there are already there are existing uh, restrictions on the depiction of crime, and like triads, for example, are very sensitive, aren't they? And the, mm -hmm. the sort of direct rules about how you portray triad activity, wouldn't it be comparable to that? Um, so that's how it's been formulated in the new guidelines. It sort of fits into this depiction of crime, especially. Um, it also draws on the national security law to justify these changes. Um, but if you look at the history of the film censorship ordinance, there was actually a clause in there before 1994 uh, that allowed for political censorship in Hong Kong. So it was only amended in 1994. This was taken out. Uh, but this clause was in uh, the film censorship ordinance. So the changes now uh, have been made in the film censorship guidelines, which is more like an administrative document, uh, as I understand it. So, and it, it is supposed to follow with, uh, to fall within the scope uh, of the ordinance, and it seems to uh, sort of go beyond that. Um, so, people might be able to challenge this in court uh, if they would want to do that. So, a filmmaker, if their film is banned, uh, they could first appeal to the board of review that the censors have, um, and then uh, they uh, theoretically have uh, recourse to further legal action, so they could sue the government to actually challenge that. Um, but again, uh, I'm not a legal scholar, so uh, it would be good to hear someone who, who has uh, okay, more knowledge well, about this. Okay, mm -hmm. let's go to Anthony Dapran now, a Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer, author of The City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for, for joining us again. What do, what do you make of this uh, change to the uh, uh, ordinance, uh, the film censorship ordinance? Uh, well, yeah, just to pick up, I guess, on a, a couple of the points that uh, that Christoph made. I think it is interesting that this was done not by amending the law itself, but by amending the guidelines, which meant that the government could just sort of drop it on a Friday afternoon through a press release um, rather than going through the whole legislative amendment process. Um, uh, and, and they've done that by, by effectively saying that the existing rules on the depiction of crime also apply to the depiction of, of national security law crimes, which it, it, on its face makes sense. I think that the devil is going to be in the implementation. Um, for example, there are many Hong Kong films, you know, classics going back to the, the, the John Woo, Ringo Lam films of the 80s and 90s, just sort of a, you know, a Better Tomorrow or, or City on Fire, uh, through to, to Johnny Toe films like Election that arguably, you know, certainly depict crime and, and, and arguably glorified. I mean, Chow Yun-Fat makes gangsters look pretty cool. Um, so the question is when the censors are now being faced with depictions of, of the 2019 protests, for example, whether in, in, in fictional films or documentaries, where do they draw the line? And it, it seems to me that the environment created by the national security law is going to push them to, to urge on the side of extreme caution. Uh, and I would not be surprised if, if any depiction on film of, of the, the events of 2019 are deemed to be in some way either supporting or glorifying or, or encouraging in the minds of audiences uh, to to support those sorts of national security crimes and end up falling foul of, of, of the censors. Because of the environment at the moment? Certainly, I think because of the environment where we, st no one really is still aware, is yet aware of where the red lines lie on, on any of the offences under the national security law. We still haven't seen a, a case prosecuted through to conclusion. We've seen large numbers of arrests, including the arrests this morning at Apple Daily, um, across a very wide, or covering a very wide spectrum of activity. And in that sort of environment, uh, both the censors doing the censoring and the creators creating the content are going to be uh, very reluctant to 
to try and test those red lines. Um, and I think certainly it's going to be a brave censor that sort of steps forward and says that they think something's okay when the government or, or, or the, the central government liaison office or the Hong Kong Macau Affairs Office have already stated very clearly that they don't think these types of uh, this type of imagery or these types of films should be should be shown. And, and how far would you expect it to go? I mean, would you? I mean, if a Hollywood movie uh, negatively depicts China or something in Chinese history. Uh, you know, would you expect that to fall foul? No, that, that's an interesting question. Now, that's obviously not within the scope of depictions of crime, but there is that other um, aspect of the, of the law and the guidelines that, that Christoph just referred to about discrimination and, and uh, causing a you know, sort of vilification or discrimination, which includes on, on ethnic grounds. Now, arguably, that could be adapted to, to say that, as, as in the mainland, uh, depictions that uh, show China in a negative light or insult China in various ways may also be, uh, uh, be required to be censored. Now, that's not explicitly referred to in, in the new guidelines as yet, and I don't think that's immediately on the horizon, but you can see over time perhaps a practice developing in that direction. I think there's the scope for that if they wanted to, to go that way, certainly. Uh, and this is, you know, this is part of an understanding, a different kind of understanding of national security, isn't it? That it's, national security is something that is very, it's kind of pervasive. It's something that's got a, all our laws and, as uh, the chief executive puts it, uh, every, uh, every department, every individual, uh, every organisation mm. has to be, kind of be steeped in this new awareness of, of national security. And that will be in education. That means physics and chemistry and accounting uh, has to take into account. This is according to the guidelines. This is, I'm not, this, is, this is what the government has explicitly stated, uh, has to take into account national security issues and so on. And that will extend to the media, and that's part of the new legislation as well. This is, this is something that is, that is pervasive through the, the whole of Hong Kong's culture. Yes, and I think it's important to bear in mind also the way that the central government looks at national security and looks at patriotism and you, you hear even in, in, in speeches over the last week or two references to loving the country, loving the party and, and being a, a proud Chinese or ethnically Chinese and so these ideas of, of respect and love for, for country, party and Chinese ethnicity are all bound up in the one concept as far as the central government is concerned. So anything that, that impinges on any aspect of that, as, of that idea of, of, of patriotism um, may be seen to, to, to be undermining national security. Haven't we just got to get used to it, though? It seems to be the case, yes. Okay. Well, also with us is uh, Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Good morning to you. Good morning. Hi. Thanks for, jo for, for joining us uh, once again. Uh, what, what do you make of this uh, film censorship change in, in Hong Kong? Uh, how does it compare with what you know of uh, how things are done on the mainland? Well, you know, first of all, these new rules, as because Presently, I'm, I'm in the United States, and I've been following a lot of the press here, as, as well as in China. And, you know, they've been described in many publications in the sort of uh, apocalyptic, uh, yet another end of Hong Kong narrative that, you know, it has really bedeviled Hong Kong for decades. Uh, the end of free speech, the end of the Hong Kong film industry, uh, the end of Hong Kong period. And I think that these things actually do more harm to Hong Kong than the actual policymaking that prompts these sorts of descriptions. And, of course, all of this is very erroneously equated uh, with a Chinese communist plot, which was, in fact, the main point of a recent New York Times story on this development. But I'm looking here at uh, Variety uh, magazine, one of the leading uh, Hollywood trade publications, which says, quote, 
Hong Kong issued new amendments to its film classification rules, effectively injecting Beijing's strict censorship standards on the previously liberal territory. Now, from my position, uh, this is a gross overstatement. Uh, Given developments in Hong Kong in recent years, uh, the instability and the violence, these rules are a relatively modest adjustment. Uh, And I think that they compare favorably in terms of their systemic institutionalized approach versus the emerging ad hoc corporate and university approaches to censorship we're seeing currently in the United States. And I don't think they come anything close to what we see uh, in the mainland. Um, I don't think that uh, uh, anything that's been proposed yet uh, broaches what we see in the mainland, uh, especially because we, we haven't talked about uh, um, uh, shutting down the Internet or creating a, a great uh, 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 firewall or whatever it is. What's the main difference between the sets of law that uh, in China, um, in, in mainland China, and, and, and the one that was trying to uh, ratify the guidelines in Hong Kong right now? Well, you know, in China, what we what we have is a is a, a strict quota on the number of uh, foreign films that can come in, mm. and then what you have to have is, of course, the films that that do uh, that are allowed to to fill a quota spot. They have to avoid, um, you know, certain um, uh, negative topics. Now, one of the things that we've seen, of course, is that Hollywood. Um, has really pandered to the Chinese market and has really pandered to that censorship board uh, in recent years. We don't see a lot of big-budget uh, Hollywood films, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, doing so, saying something uh, offensive uh, to Chinese nationalism or the party. Mm. And, in fact, they go out of their way to make sort of positive references, either directly or indirectly, uh, in order to pander to that market. Uh, and this has been a, a, a big uh, criticism in Hollywood of, of this sort of uh, internal censorship. And we know that this is happening um, with a lot of streaming services. Um, but in terms of, um, um, what, I think one of the earlier uh, the emails that was read, uh, you know, I think indirectly referenced uh, Star Wars. Um, I don't think, you know, we, we have all of those films in China, um, the big blockbusters. And um, you know, so I don't, uh, I don't, I understand that this is a, a lot of hand wringing, and uh, certainly it's it's an uncomfortable development, but I don't I don't see it uh, rising to that level of um, you know anxiety inducing change that that so many people uh, suspect it forebodes. Do you sorry? Do you agree that Hollywood has been uh, pandering to China? Quite a bit. There have been a lot of studies uh, about this, and especially in the blockbusters, because there's uh, so much money in, in uh, the Chinese market. Uh, we'll see them, you know, putting cameos of, of famous uh, Chinese stars. Uh, I could I could tell this one uh, story um, about Kung Fu Panda. When Kung Fu Panda first came out, it really angered people in Beijing uh, leaders um, because uh, you know this was. Uh, a Chinese narrative. This was the, the Chinese symbol of soft power par excellence, and it had been taken over by uh, a Hollywood company, and it became a multi-billion-dollar franchise. And you know, allegedly, Hu Jintao or someone says, "Why didn't we do this?" Right? And then the second Kung Fu Panda comes out, and again, um, you know, it's it's got a formula. It's making it's making a lot of money, and Chinese leaders are not too happy about it. But when the third Kung Fu Panda came out. 
it was financed by a Shanghai um, uh, company. And <laughs> interestingly, it, it picked up, and it was all about family, okay? And it was really playing one-to-one to what was the, the family, the Harmonious Family campaign that was then part of the, the, the national uh, ideological or, or, or political rhetoric that was then taking place at the end of the Hu Jintao and, and, and initial Xi Jinping years. So, yeah, we see this, and, and, and I mean, that's a very dramatic example, but we see it in other, in other films. Uh, you can see it in The Martian, for example, um, with, with uh, the Chinese helping with the rescue and, and all of these things. Would you expect that to change with the, with the, whatever, the backlash or whatever you kind of want to call it, the kind of reaction that you'd see, yeah, typified in those examples in, in um, New York Times or Variety? Would I expect that the what I would expect? Would you expect Hollywood to, to change? To um, you know, I think I think what, what we're seeing right now is, of course, a lot of the films are are making money uh, after COVID. Uh, the, the market has changed a little bit, um, and we and so much of it's going uh, through streaming services, right? And uh, you know, for example, Netflix uh, is not uh, does not uh, broadcast in um, China, but uh, it does broadcast in a lot of other uh, national markets. And interestingly enough, uh, I think if you, uh, just to to lay this out as a comparison, if you compare the censorship uh, rules in Hong Kong versus Singapore, right, I think they're much more strident in in Singapore. Um, And uh, some studies indicate that uh, Netflix censors itself according to Singaporean standards. more than any other place in the world. So a lot of this is now happening at the corporate level in these private industries, um, and it's never even getting to uh, the government uh, uh, review board. We've seen this also in some academic journals where China has laid out, uh, these are the taboo topics, and if you want to have access to our market, you need to self-censor and not let certain articles come through uh, these services. And Companies like Springer and others have have followed through with this to uh, 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 great criticism, and yet that's where the business model is. Uh, they don't want to alienate, you know, subscriptions with thousands of Chinese universities. Uh, they don't because you know m- the majority of what they publish is related to science. Well, what, what, what's your technology. view on that? Do you think they should stick to their principles and 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 not? deal with China if they're going to have to be subject to those restrictions? Do you think Hollywood shouldn't be pandering? You know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, I have a much, I have a, I have a big problem with, with the Hollywood model for different reasons. Um, but, you know, Hollywood exists to, to maximize profits as, as corporations. They have... Oh, all right, what about, what about academic publishing? What about academic publishing? Um... This is a problem. I, I'm a I'm a uh, associate editor on the journal, the Journal of Chinese Political uh, Studies, and this is a problem that that we faced. And um, you know, what we try to do is 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 um, maximize our exposure as much as possible. And if this means that periodically uh, Springer or someone else uh, restricts access to a certain uh, uh, article, um, that's that's something that we have to go along with because we've explored other other uh, academic publishers and they're all following the same thing now. But what I will say about this is that, in fact, the biggest thing that prevents access is paywalls. And you can get almost every article 
from any of the you know, JSTOR, these other major um, uh, academic um, uh, websites, they're all available through uh, Russian and Ukrainian websites that have that are restricted in the United States but are completely free and open in China. So it's okay. actually much easier to access that okay. stuff. Okay, Anthony Japaran, what about, I mean, the, the, you know, there is every kind of flavor of censorship all over the world, place like Singapore, you know, maybe even stronger than, than Hong Kong. Why are we getting so upset about what we're seeing here? I think that point about the corporate self-censorship that, uh, that Joseph just made is actually very pertinent in, in Hong Kong in the sense that precisely what these new film censorship guidelines create is an atmosphere of uncertainty. And in that atmosphere of uncertainty, people who finance and pay for movies, people who spend uh, their creative efforts and time to produce movies um, are not going to be willing to make that investment if there is some risk that their film is never going to be able to be screened in Hong Kong. So it leads to an increasing atmosphere of, of if, if you want to call it self-censorship, self-censorship in the sense that th these guidelines end up in, in these films simply just not being made in the first place because it's not worth making all that investment with the risk that, that it's all going to go to waste. Um, and, and I think in, in some ways that is part of the purpose of the guidelines, to create an atmosphere of uncertainty, to create a sense that it's ju not, just not worth producing these kind of films that get close to the red lines um, and we should direct our energies and our, and our money elsewhere. Okay, a comment from uh, Alan and an, and an email who says, Back chat, surprising no one. Freedom of expression in Hong Kong is now revoked. News reports and documentaries have already been neutered. Jimmy Lai imprisoned on absurd charges. Now films officially as well. No one will dare to invest in any film that might be criticised by the government or any of their newspapers, as all it takes is an op-ed in Tarkung Pao that carry to leap into action to attack or arrest whoever was criticised. I know that publishing is already effectively censored. Many printers refuse to print any books that mention any controversial topics. And controversial means whatever the CCP wants it to mean. I hear the usual apologies saying it's all fine, all necessary. What it is is a demonstration of how insecure and thin-skinned the CCP, following the lead as it does in everything of Xi Jinping. No teddy bears will ever be seen in Hong Kong film again. That's uh, from Alan. We're going to break now for the news at night. Continue the discussion after that. Got a few interesting emails as well. To get to the weather, sunny periods and isolated showers, 30 degrees now with a relative humidity of 80. Ruling reverts the asylum laws to how they were before Mr Trump took office. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. Back chat this Thursday morning with Nixie Lam and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking about film censorship uh, on the back of those changes to the film censorship ordinance uh, uh, announced uh, at the uh, weekend. Uh, the chief executive has said that the new rules have caused some anxiety. We're uh, talking about that uh, with our guest this morning, Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai, currently in the US. Uh, Anthony Dapparan, who's a Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer and the author of City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong. And Christoph van den Trost, who's an assistant professor in the Centre for China Studies at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Later, we're going to be talking about uh, problems, consumer problems with uh, staycation, uh, hotels uh, and so on with the head of the uh, Consumer Council. We want to hear from you, of course. Backchat at rthk.hk uh, is the email address. You can also comment on our Facebook page. That's Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You want to share your thoughts there. Um, or you can uh, give us a call on 233 88266. Uh, okay, here's uh, what the listeners uh, have to say. Pat says, How long before Hong Kong is placed behind the Great Firewall? Such a shame what is happening to this once great city. That's from Pat. 
Matthew says, uh, with political censorship of films and the Apple Daily arrests this morning, it now seems clear that within the next one or two years, freedom of information in Hong Kong will be gone and on a par with the mainland. No free local media like Apple Daily or the Stan News and a firewall around the internet, meaning no open international media, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. As someone who's represented Hong Kong people before and presumably aspires to do so again, uh, now the electoral system has been improved, I would like to hear if our DAB host, Nixie Lam, thinks taking away freedom of information in Hong Kong is a smart move and the right direction. I don't think it's taking away of the freedom of information. You can always go online. And according to what the... Uh, the message just said about free media of, of Apple Daily, I think it's just fake media from Apple Daily. Okay, Bowen says, uh, with the subject, uh, uh, maybe, we, actually, maybe we'll get to that a little bit, bit later. Uh, Matthew also has a question for Professor Mahoney. Uh, he says, uh, Professor Mahoney, as a professor in a mainland university, if you disagree with the policy of the mainland government, are you free to express this disagreement or criticism openly? If so, can you please give us an example of some policies or decisions by the government which you disagree with? Professor Mahoney, do you want to respond? You know, in fact, uh, I disagree with a lot of things. Uh, the, the only question is, and I, and I disagree with them uh, frequently in class, um, <laughs> but if you want to publish in a mainland uh, publication, um, then uh, I may find that uh, my, my uh, remarks are, are not uh, published. Uh, what I do find, though, sometimes is that you can purchase some criticism if you avoid, uh, you know, um, um, uh, framing it in a way where you're delegitimizing the government. And also you can raise critical issues, you can talk about problems, you can talk about possible solutions, but if you're framing it in a way that tries to uh, destabilize the government or, or um, uh, create some sort of instability uh, or embarrass particular leaders, then in all likelihood the editors, not the government itself, but the editors, uh, will prevent you from uh, publishing that material. Okay, uh, Will uh, puts things uh, a little more bluntly. Uh, with the subject line, your guest. Uh, Will says, brave of your current guest to come on and shill for the CCP. Takes enormous moral courage uh, that clearly, and then there's an emoji that I'm not quite sure what it means. But what of people that may take a different side of the argument to him surrounding the NSL and the rosy picture he paints? Because he acts as if this is just some abstract intellectual debate where all views are welcomed. But that's simply not true. For the people that openly take a different view, the personal consequences can be pretty severe. That's truthfully what a lot of people find so grotesque. This make-believe that we can all express our views equally and openly in a discussion, when in reality, I'm thinking twice whether it's even a good idea to send this email. and certainly won't be comfortable doing it with my identity attached, whereas there are no such issues for him, obviously. That comes uh, from Will. Once again, our email is backchat.rthk.hk. Uh, Christopher Natras, I was thinking of a concrete example of... I mean, um, um, uh, ten years, uh, the film that won the Hong Kong Film Awards a, a couple of years ago is a kind of a standout example. It's now on Netflix, isn't it? It's now kind of worldwide distribution. Would that be allowed in Hong Kong? Would you do you understand? Could, do, you, do you think that could be shown in Hong Kong under the new rules? Um, well, as I said before, I'm not sure about Netflix, but uh, for public screenings of the film, um, I would be very doubtful that it will get permission to screen. Um, because uh, it was already very difficult to screen it uh, a few years ago when it came out, um, even though there was no law that really forbade uh, its screening. It's just that uh, the, the theaters uh, 
over uh, under pressure not to screen it, perhaps because they had commercial interests uh, in mainland China that they didn't want to have uh, affected. Um, and so this this is something that has been going on for quite a while. Um, and so I think uh, now this is basically it's it's made easier. Um, the the theaters are not uh, but simply not allowed to screen it anymore. Do you have any feeling how this is going to affect? I mean, as you say, the, the chief executive said that there was, this caused some anxiety, these new rules. Is that your sense? Do you think that filmmakers and film distributors are going to be thinking two and three times before they act? Yeah, <clears throat> definitely. Um, I, I think there's a lot of questions that this raises. Um, so, for instance, uh, is it still possible to show corrupt policemen in films? Uh, is that a kind of uh, subversion of the state or corruption in government? Is that still allowed? Um, is there, if there's a film with terrorists uh, destroying uh, certain infrastructure in Hong Kong, is that still going to be allowed? So there, there's a lot of questions that filmmakers will ask themselves and uh, that we are still waiting to find out uh, what is allowed and what is not, how far will this go. There are some clear red lines set out. Um, I think it's quite clear now that documentaries about the 2019 protests will not uh, be uh, able to screen unless they take a very critical uh, perspective uh, against those protests. Um, that comes quite uh, clearly out of um, these uh, new guidelines. Um, there's actually been one case already of, of uh, censorship of a film um, at a Fresh Wave Film Festival. Uh, it's uh, with uh, films by uh, young uh, new directors, a short film called Far From Home. Um, that film uh, dealt with uh, 2019 protests, but only indirectly, uh, sort of a personal story. Um, I haven't seen the film, but I've read the synopsis of it, and uh, the, the director has uh, given an interview in Mingpao about what the film is about, uh, and it's really focusing more on sort of political tensions within the family. Um, so if that is not allowed, then well, what else? Uh, so that's still something we will have to, to find out. Um, so it's clearly that uh, references to 2019 and the protests that year um, are very sensitive to the, sens to the censors. And a lot of films might be ambiguous in one way or another. They might have, you know, a depiction of a, of a, a criminal act, but might they might get their comeuppance or something, or they, they may be sympathetic because they, you understand why they did it or something like that. There might be mm -hmm. all kinds of complications. It's not as easy as saying this supports or doesn't support uh, uh, an act. Yeah, yeah. So even some of the films uh, that previously have been controversial, I think Inside the Red Brick Wall is is not actually inciting people to stand up against the government. Um, it's it's has been read that way, but people have read it in other ways as well. So who is making this decision? On what basis? Um, censorship uh, in Hong Kong is supposed to reflect the. Uh, the opinions of the public. Now, this is actually stated in the censorship guidelines. Um, so how is the government going to do this? Are they going to do questionnaires about what is uh, acceptable in terms of the depiction of national security uh, in films? Um, are they going to consult those advisors? Um, still a lot of questions uh, that have to be answered. Mm. Anthony Deperan, your, your, your thoughts? Yeah, I, mean, I, I suspect where we're going to end up is in the situation where I think one of three things is going to happen. Firstly, I think many films just simply won't be made because of the risk that there's going to be wasted investment that in films aren't going to be screened. Secondly, I, I think that creators are going to have to start learning to speak in code, as I think you just alluded to, Hugh, and as creators under many authoritarian regimes learn to find other ways to express what they want to express that perhaps their audience can understand while carefully <laughs> evading the censors. Um, and I suspect the third outcome will be that uh, some Hong Kong directors may find uh, themselves in a similar position 
them to their mainland counterparts where they're unable to screen their films in Hong Kong or within China and, and will have to resort to filming them only in, uh, screening them rather in uh, only in overseas film festivals and, and for international audiences but they will uh, effectively be forced to give up their domestic audience if they want to create the kind of films that uh, might uh, approach the red lines. Because bizarrely, you you sometimes get a great creativity uh, from in regimes which are <laughs> which have oh, uh, restrictions. Yeah. There, I think like Iranian film is, oh, absolutely is very celebrated. Yes, the, the, the Eastern Bloc during the sort of the, the communist era from from Iran. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it is a great inspirer of of, of creativity and and and, and uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I don't I don't expect that Hong Kong directors and actors and writers will stop creating, but um, they'll have to find new new ways of doing it. And is the internet next? Uh, because it is specifically mentioned in the national security legislation that there has to be management of the internet. That's right, and we had an interesting example a, a couple of weeks ago where the Hong Kong National Security Police reached out to Wix, a, a website provider based in Israel, and asked them to take down the Hong Kong Charter 2021 site um, on, the, on national security grounds. And I think they initially complied with that request before sort of suddenly, uh, after some public pressure, putting it back up again and saying it was all a mistake. But it's a clear example, I think, that the, the Hong Kong national security authorities are looking at websites and intend to exercise that jurisdiction that the national security law gives them um, globally to, to, to censor the internet where they feel that it affects national security. So it'll be interesting to see um, how that plays out going forward. Is that something of a red line for, for Hong Kong people or for, for businesses as well, if the internet starts being censored like that? I don't know. What do you think? Look, it certainly changes the, the calculus. I mean, one of the key features of an, an international financial centre is the free flow of information. And I think it is uh, – some people will try to draw the distinction between business financial information and political information. But in China, of course, everything is political and, and all aspects of, of, of business and the economy and finance are, are political in some way. So I think if there's any suggestion that free flow of information is going to be constrained in Hong Kong, I think that certainly changes its, its position as an international financial centre. Hmm. All right. Uh, um, another question from uh, Matthew in an email. Again, this is for you, Professor Mahoney. Matthew says, Professor Mahoney didn't answer my question. He said he disagrees with a lot of things the mainland government does, but didn't offer one example. Professor Mahoney, are you freely able to openly share with us an example of a mainland government policy you are critical of or not? You know, I think that this is uh, this has happened to me a couple of times on your show, where I get called a shill or I get called uh, some other negative uh, comment, and, and that I'm some, somehow part of this communist conspiracy, and it's all about me. And frankly, as an academic, uh, I don't care about that kind of comment, and I don't feel a need to respond to it. Uh, but what I will say is, there's this there's this kind of incredible uh, uh, blind spot about how open and free things are in China relative to the perception. You know, CCTV showed V for Vendetta uh, on national television. You, you think that we're able to run a massive uh, uh, financial center in Pudong without the free flow of information? You think that the majority of the students on my campus don't have VPN and they're not downloading and accessing anything that they want? Come on. China is moving ahead through the information age. And people, people know that there's censorship, and they compensate for it, okay? And if you don't know that there's all sorts of criticism and, and various discussions that take place uh, in, in the mainland, then you're not paying attention, right? You're just the frog at the bottom of the well looking up the big, bad China and not really understanding what's happening around you. Mr. Tupperin? 
Well, I mean, Shanghai is a, is a financial centre for China. It's a big domestic financial centre. I don't think anyone seriously considers Shanghai an international financial centre, um, even setting aside the, the lack of an open capital account and no transferability of currency. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the Hong Kong is not looking to compete with Shanghai. Hong Kong's looking at, at, at Singapore and, and, and New York and London. Um, and uh, you know, those are, are places that, that Hong Kong needs to be concerned about when it's looking at the way things develop down the path. Professor Mahoney, you agree? Uh, I, I think that quite a number of my friends and colleagues in, in Pudong would, would disagree about it being purely a domestic or national uh, 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 financial center. I think that the, the, the connections globally there are, are quite profound. And, How many uh, international companies have raised capital in Shanghai? Um, you know, I'm not an economist. That's not my area. But uh, I don't know. None. I you think know? the answer. <laughs> What because of the because of the free flow of information? No, no, it's not possible for them to list on the Shanghai Stock Exchange. So that's a different issue. Hmm. So the free flow of information doesn't make any difference. No, it's not related to the free flow of information. That's right. That's right. But I mean, that's to the broader point that Shanghai is not connected to the global capital markets in the way that Hong Kong is. Uh, what, what about that point that people in in China do know what's what's going on and they do routinely evade the censorship rules uh, through VPN? Oh, no, I think that that's quite correct. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely, yes. Um, you know, everyone who has any any interest or sophistication or sort of is inclined to do so is, is able to do so. Um, I think for the, the vast majority of the population, they're neither interested nor inclined to do so and happy to live within the confines of WeChat. Um, but the, 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 the facilities are there if people want to do that, certainly. Couldn't you see Hong Kong then being acting in, in the same way, either like Singapore with, with, with strict rules or like the mainland with, with rules which are routinely, I don't know, overlooked, bent. Uh, and as in the case of Shanghai, it wouldn't make much difference to the financial community. Yeah, that, that comparison with, with the mainland and sort of the, the overlooking or bending of rules, I think, is an interesting one. Um, I've heard a number of people in the creative industries in Hong Kong, um, also with experience in the mainland, comment that actually they feel now it's almost easier in the mainland than in Hong Kong for, for two reasons. Firstly, in the mainland, the, the red lines are much clearer um, mm-hmm. and you know what you can and can't do, whereas in Hong Kong, we're still in this situation where we're, we're a great deal of uncertainty over where the red lines lie. Um, and secondly, as you say, in the mainland, things are the grey areas are much bigger. Um, and if you sort of accidentally transgress, um, you may receive a visit from the, the local police or be invited for a cup of tea or your exhibition may be closed down or your screening cancelled, but everyone just moves on. Whereas in Hong Kong, we have a government talking about the rule of law and sort of the need to vigorously uh, enforce every law and to prosecute every transgression sort of to the, the maximum extent. Um, and in a way, that leads to much more serious consequences. Um, and we, because of this strong ethic of the rule of law, we don't have these grey areas that allow people to sort of perhaps um, have, enjoy greater flexibility than they might otherwise do under, the, under a strict reading of the law. Mm. Uh, Christoph and the trust, can you, we tempt you into a political indiscretion? Are you feeling optimistic? How do you feel about it? <laughs> um, well, recent events are, are not very... Uh, uh, optimism inspiring <laughs> i guess um but uh, i hope that at some point there will be a kind of stabilization uh that uh, things will not uh, go further down this path 
um, that if there are red lines, that they are more clearly defined than they are uh, right now, uh, at least, so that filmmakers can work with it, because this uncertainty is, is really difficult for the business. Okay, a few comments uh, on Facebook. TC says, in the pre-Exco meeting press conference, Carrie Lamb stated she doesn't see how the new changes will affect creativity. It's an interesting statement in that how many films has she seen and what makes her an authoritative figure in creative arts? There are a great many films in Hong Kong which depict members of the police force as antagonists, e.g. Infernal Affairs, the Cold War series. Do they ever undermine the security or public confidence? Of Hong Kong. That's uh, from uh, TC. Uh, Matthew says, uh, this is a follow-up for Nixie. So, Nixie, you're saying that it's okay for Apple Daily to be banned because it's fake news and you support this. Is that Apple correct? Daily has produced a numerous of fake newses and there are cases that they pay the people to produce those fake newses. I, mean, I think they, uh, the, the, they should research more before coming back to me on that. Okay, Matthew says, uh, how about Stan News and Hong Kong Free Press? Are they also fake news and should therefore be banned? Or a firewall that filters out news you feel is fake news from overseas publications like New York Times or Guardian? Do you support this? New York Times, I've been, I've been reading on New York Times in recent months and uh, some of the piece of um, news information are very interesting in a way. I'm still studying on how they portrait those stories and stuff. Um, and I, I, I disagree with a lot of them, of the contents from the New York Times, uh, especially would, on the Chinese version. Would you block there. it in Hong Kong for that reason? No. You wouldn't? At the moment, no. Okay. Uh, and uh, Bowen... And I'm not, I don't have any, any power to block anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, Bowen, uh, kind of related uh, observations, uh, talks about uh, Albert Chai. Uh, Albert Chai, who's a co-founder of uh, Alibaba, he recently did an interview, uh, a co-founder of Alibaba, maintains that Hong Kong needs a security law because it was lost to Britain in the 1800s. The exact opposite can be deduced from the premise of his argument, because not only is there now no foreign power intent on carving up Hong Kong from China, which is virtually impossible anyway, but Hong Kong's support for reunification actually continued to increase after the handover until it peaked about a decade later. It's highly probable that things would not have turned sour, certainly not to the extent that they did, despite discrepancies over democratisation, if the authorities had not sought to ram provocative measures down the throats of locals. Building the express rail terminal in West Kowloon was not inevitable, co-location was not absolutely necessary, and the extradition bill was, of course, disastrously conceived and handled. Taking a more delicate and nuanced approach in such issues would not have threatened national security. It would have averted the violent confrontations which prompted the implementation of the NSL, apart from showing to the world that Hong Kong was enjoying a high degree of autonomy, as promised. Albert Chai's approach may presage an unhealthy future trend in US-China dialogue. I mean, the standoff China will likely highlight its having been bullied by the West in the past, and the West will likely say, let's not emphasise the past at the expense of jeopardising a functioning and progressive international regime. My take is that the West's treacherous past need not be forgotten, because treachery will remain part of human nature. However, the West has also done a great deal to make up for its past misdeeds through its conciliatory and nurturing policies towards China in the past half-century, without which the latter's rapid resurgence would have been unlikely. It would serve both sides well to keep this whole truth and not just fragments of it in mind. That is from Bowen. Thank you very much indeed, Bowen, and to uh, everyone uh, who uh, emailed and uh, commented uh, this morning uh, on our first topic. Uh, any more? Yeah, OK, just a couple more. Um, this is from Alan, who says... Uh, 
Back chat, your guest is more sophisticated than the usual Wu Mao, but that is what he is. Uh, claiming that showing V for Vendetta demonstrates how a liberal China is is absurd. It's a critique of Western government, particularly written to attack the Thatcher government. Is 1984 Animal Farm allowed in China? That people can access the free internet via VPNs does not help anyone produce a film or book inside China. They cannot earn any money and face persecution and uh, imprisonment. And uh, Will says, so just to be clear then, in response to Matthew's question, Professor Mahoney can't think of a single CCP policy he disagrees with, but was able in the very same breath to pivot and give us some detailed examples of the tremendous openness enjoyed you know, by I those... Can give you, I can give you two things that, that, I have, that I have said in print and on television in China. One, I criticize the government for not having more women in, in positions of power and that they should work to increase that by 40% by 2050. And then I was criticized by feminists in China for not say, making it 50%. Uh, I've done other things as well, but this isn't about me, even though uh, I get paid less than Wu Mao to come on this show to talk about it. <laughs> Okay, well, Professor Mahoney, thank you very much indeed, indeed for joining us. We're grateful that you uh, that you uh, participate. Uh, we'd like to hear from you. Thank you very much. We'd like to hear from all our guests, of course. Uh, Dr. Joseph Gregory Mahoney, there, Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Many thanks to Anthony Dapperan, Hong Kong-based writer and lawyer, the author of City on Fire, The Fight for Hong Kong, and to Christoph van den Trost, who's uh, Assistant Professor in the Centre for China Studies at the Chinese University. Thank you all very much indeed for joining us this morning. Finally, uh, as mentioned, to uh, Staycation, the uh, Consumer Council has uh, uh, been uh, pointing out it's received uh, some 10 complaints related to staycation bookings in the first five months of this year on many people's minds, I'm sure, as the uh, summer approaches. We're joined now by uh, Gilly Wong, who's the uh, Chief Executive of the Consumer Council. Good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. Thanks so much indeed for, for joining us once again. What, what sort of uh, complaints did you get then? What, what you, when you talk about staycation traps, what does that mean? Well, uh, first of all, when we talk about vacation, um, the consumers will have a much higher expectation about the hotel because they will stay a lot more time in room as well as to use the facilities like swimming pools, spa, or, 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 the, or the fitness center, or even the buffet. They enjoy buffet a lot. Mm. But um, what, the, what kind of you know, um, uh, complaints you know, that we receive, for example, uh, when someone, there's a complainant, that um, she had a celebration, but uh, she spent a lot of time in checking out the uh, um, the, the the suite, uh, the top story sea view suite. Then you know she she checked it out again and again, and then she booked it. But by the time she checked in, um, she just realized that the room was blocked by two commercial buildings, um, the rooftop of two commercial buildings. That is extremely disappointing for her, because from the, the official <laughs> website, um, um, she she uh, what she saw is uh, is. It's a 100% 360-degree kind of serial. Mm. But unfortunately, it turned out to be not the case. That ruined her celebration a lot. So this is one case. Another case is about pets. Pet owners love to bring their pets to the hotels to have a vacation, right? Mm. But um, one hotel uh, got complained because uh, it only received uh, dogs but not cats. Uh, but it doesn't state well in um, in the terms and conditions. Um, so by the time the, uh, the complainant checked in, uh, she uh, realized uh, um, um, this fact, and then, uh, of course, you know, there's a lot of arguments in between. But finally, um, she got checked in, but you know, she got charged for extra $500 for cleaning up the room as well. So this is another complaint. And also some other complaints is related to the promotional offers, whether it's clearly stated, uh, uh, whether uh, uh, the hotel can fully honor um, the, um, the offer and promotion you know, that they talk about. Um, that led to some other complaints as well. So, um, cut it all in short, what we suggest consumer is, in case you want to have a vacation, don't just attract by all the lovely promotions and offers. If you have any specific need, specific demand, 
you better check it out the details with the hotel first in advance. Mm. Otherwise, you know, that may cause a lot of disappointment for you. And also, if you are very um, concerned about um, the pandemic, uh, in another survey, a mystery survey that we did, we found some hotels actually they don't proactively notify the consumers or, 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 or the customers um, in case, you know, they have in, any infected cases. So the consumers also have to be really mindful about um, the measures and policies of different hotels when such incident happened, what would they do for you? Mm. It seems like there's a lot of um, clause that comes around with those um, staycation packages. Um, like there's a lot of like vouchers and how when you can use use those vouchers and when you cannot use those vouchers and and restrict the restaurant and stuff. It seems like it's just that they the customer just needs to check up more more carefully. There's nothing that we can actually do on that, isn't it? Um, there are two things you know that actually can be done. First of all, we should urge the hotel to do better mm. uh, in their communication mm. um, and also be, especially, you know, when they offer the information to third-party platforms like the online travel agencies mm. because what we found, quite a number of um, complaints and disputes are booked via those uh, third-party platforms. Mm. Some is with the official uh, website, but some is a third-party uh, travel online, uh, online travel agencies, the OTA. So we believe... Um, the, the hotel actually can do a lot more better in the communication, the information that they offer. But on the other hand, um, for the uh, consumers, probably, you know, they have to be more mindful about what exactly they need. And in case they spot something that's not that clear, it's better to check it out before they really confirm the booking. Mm. And, and have they got to you and the consumer council because they didn't get satisfaction from the hotel? Or did they complain to the hotel and then they, you know, that, that didn't work? So yeah, they, they end up with you? Obviously, sometimes, you know, they, they have direct conversation, but it doesn't come into a, a resolution. So um, they uh, came to us to uh, seek for further assistance. But, uh, of course, you know, we are very good at conciliation, so we do our very best to help um, the complainant. And um, for the few cases, um, the first case, we have a very happy ending because the uh, consumer gets a refund by half of the room rate that mm-hmm. she pay for. But mm-hmm. for the second and the third one, um, because the terms and conditions is quite clear, um, so it's unlikely, you know, that can be conciliated. And, and then, you know, the complainant um, finally, you know, have no reply to us on what the next step they want to have. Yeah. I'm actually, as a cat owner, I'm actually very confused why the, the, the dogs are allowed and not the cats. <laughs> well, <laughs> And then yeah. they charge another 500 bucks. I mean, the cats can go oh, to I'm a cat it. owner, but I would never think of taking my cat to a hotel. I'm, I'm considering. I, I have a few of my friends. But there. yeah, we, Just like we also photo talk about it. It is very difficult to guess, but uh, maybe there's one possible reason is um, cats maybe um, sometimes, you know, they crawl a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> scratchy. So just in case, you know, uh, it's... It, uh, uh, it damage anything, you know, the risk may be higher. We don't know. Mm. We haven't checked it out with the hotel, but what we believe is if you have a specific uh, limitation about what kind of pets that the, um, the, the guests can, uh, can bring, you better spell it up well in advance. Yeah, I think there's an incident about a girl bringing a lizard or something as a pet into one of the hotel. I think there's a news about that. Yeah, um, two months ago or something. Different consumers have uh, have their own favorite pets. Yeah, uh, some can be maybe a rabbit or some other things. But you have to tell um, the guests really upfront so mm. that they can make an informed decision whether they want to come or not, mm. or even if they um, they just do it on their own. Um, you still have the good reason of telling. The guess that you know why you have to charge for the extra five hundred dollars or some other cleaning fee is involved. Yeah. 
I guess with the cats, there's a lot, of, quite a lot of people are allergic to cat fur as well, aren't they? Surprising yeah. number. That might be in consideration. Oh, no. Anyway, Gilly Wantham, many thanks for, for joining us uh, this morning, Chief Executive of the uh, Consumer Council. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Nixie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, the weather forecast, sunny periods and isolated showers expected today. It's going to be very hot. Temperatures up to about 33 degrees. That look very hot with sunny periods in the next couple of days, but there will also be some isolated showers. There's a very hot weather warning now with a reading of 31 Celsius and a relative humidity of 77%. Red light, don't walk. Red line, don't go. Red flag, don't swim. When a red flag is hoisted at beaches, it can mean rough seas, bad weather, a red tide, water pollution, or other dangers. Please don't swim during these conditions. Wait until the red flag is removed and a red and yellow flag is hoisted. Also, parents must take care of their children at swimming pools and beaches. Learn the beach flag signals. Swim safely. 933, the news with Samantha Butler. National Security Police have raided Apple Daily offices in Zhongguano and arrested five directors on suspicion of colluding with a foreign country or external elements to endanger national security. Police say the four men and a woman aged between 47 and 63 are being detained for investigation and searches were also conducted on their residences. China has launched its first crewed mission to space in five years. Its Shenzhou-12 spacecraft was launched on a Long March rocket to China's new space station, where three astronauts will live for three months, conducting spacewalks, experiments and doing maintenance. And President Biden has warned his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin that if the imprisoned opposition activist Alexei Navalny were to die, it would be devastating for Russia. He was speaking after his first summit with President Putin in Geneva, at which he also raised concerns about two American citizens in jail in Russia. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Designer, Interpreter of Beethoven. And well, oh so shy, quiet and retiring doggy council co-founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is a really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decide for what's happening behind the lift. Good morning. Inter- interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. And welcome to Thursday. Great to be back with you here on The Morning Brew. I'm Phil Whelan. So it's Dr. Dave Day after 11. Our vet's going to be with us to talk about blood. Well, he's going to explain all about transfusions in animals and talk about blood conditions that may, hopefully not, affect your pet. He's also going to answer any questions you may have. Morning Brew at rthk.hk or throw something underneath my post on our Facebook page. After 12 today, we're going to meet Hong Kong transport enthusiast and RTHK CIBS producer James Ockenden. Well, CIBS is RTHK's community broadcasting service. Basically, anybody can be on the radio. I'm living proof of that. Anyway, it's got some great programmes, including...